Friends, we come before God and we pray. Let's seek Him. Lord, as we sit at your feet to hear what you have for us today, we pray, Lord, that you open our ears, our minds, our hearts. Would you break down any barrier to your word? And Lord, would you do your work today? Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My slides, please. Thank you. Now, on 27th of October last year, uh, something significant happened, or, or rather something notable happened, and that is, at least for those who are, uh, spend a lot of time online, the acquisition of Twitter, right? Uh, Elon Musk, who, for those of you who are not so familiar with this guy, he is basically the world's richest man and a genius, and also, uh, how to say, doesn't take himself very seriously, <laughs> doesn't take a lot of things, doesn't seem to take a lot of things seriously, and yet um, he's, he's so rich and influential and powerful and everything. And so he, he took to, uh, he, he was not satisfied with this social media platform, Twitter, so he bought over it. Okay, and basically there was this, a few months of drama uh, about whether he's going to buy it, whether he's not going to buy it, and then uh, a lawsuit was filed against him, and then eventually he, he did buy it for 44 billion US dollars. Okay, so that's, that's how much he bought it for. And uh, after he became the owner, he laid off over half of the company's staff. So imagine, uh, 50%, over, over 50% of the employees fired. And two weeks later, hundreds of employees resigned. So, major shakeup, okay? Major shakeup at this company. Not just at the staff level. Empl uh, sorry, the, the users, Twitter users, people all around the world who were using Twitter, they were also thrown into chaos. Many who supported Elon Musk, you know, they would uh, champion and speak up for him and, and everything. Many... Many, many more would criticize him, and many left the platform. Okay, so at the end of last year, after all this chaos, uh, the majority of Twitter users took part in a Twitter poll that Elon Musk set up, asking, should he step down as CEO of Twitter? And because Twitter users always vote the most uh, controversial option, they said, yes, you should. So he said, okay, fine, he would when he finds a replacement. And so, so much drama, and this is just the boss of a tech empire. But imagine an exchange of power in an actual empire that involved the lives of an entire nation. When Absalom takes over Israel and pursues his father, David, can you imagine being an Israelite during that time? Uh, remember, three weeks ago, we saw how Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people by political maneuvering, right? He, he won their hearts, he won the popularity vote, and he even gained the support of Ahithophel, uh, David's chief advisor. And yet, David was also the anointed king, and he had fiercely loyal supporters all the way from his, his days under King Saul when he was a commander there. And he had a long track record of having the favor of not just God, but also man. And so Israel is thrown into chaos 
there's an actual civil war between father and son. And this comes to a showdown in today's passage. But what sets this, this story of drama apart from something like the Twitter acquisition is that there is more than just a mere conflict between humans happening here. And, well, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So let's see what this drama of events has to teach us today. Now, the takeaway message for us today is that in Christ, God's grace satisfies His justice and strengthens our faith. Okay, so if you forget everything, you want to take a picture of what you took away from today's passage, it's this. In Christ, God's grace satisfies His justice and strengthens our faith. Just to quickly recap where we are in our sermon series on 2 Samuel, in case you're joining us for the first time, uh, Absalom, the son of the king, had declared himself king. David was on the run once again. And David had a friend named Hushai who uh, he, he sent back to Absalom as a spy to convince Absalom not to follow the advice of Ahithophel, who was David's former chief advisor. So Absalom didn't listen to the wisdom of Ahithophel. Ahithophel told Absalom, strike while you can, okay, be quick, uh, take out David, and then you, you, can, you don't need to have any more casualties, right? So be quick about it. But instead, Hushai said, no, 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 don't listen to this guy. My advice is better. You don't strike now, you gather all of Israel to you, and then you lead them ahead on the charge. And so this appealed to Absalom's ego that, oh, yeah, I take the whole forces of all of Israel and then I lead them into battle on my, uh, on my charge. And everybody follows me and it's like, Lord, the rings, oh, ah, okay, so that appealed to him. So he said, okay, fine, I will follow that advice instead. Steamroll David's army, just take some time to gather all the people. And so because of this, David had time to escape across the Jordan River, and he had time to also resupply. He was very tired, they were, uh, he, he and his men were very hungry. They had time to resupply their troops in a place called Mahanaim. They also had time to organize them into an army. So he had time to get ready. And that brings us to the events of the passage today. When David's army goes to battle with the rest of Israel under Absalom's command. So this is literally a civil war. For those of you who watch Avengers Civil War, something like that happening, okay? but on a larger scale. And so the first thing that we can see in today's passage is a need for justice. Now, Absalom committed many injustices. He committed injustices against his father, against his king, and against God himself. Firstly, Absalom rebelled against his father by not just trying to take the throne, he also tried to take his place as the head of the entire uh, dynasty. And you remember how he pitched a tent on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the side of all of Israel? Now, not only is this a, a shameful and disgraceful act, uh, the Bible says it, it would make him obnoxious to his father. It's not just a, a, a statement, okay? Not just a face thing. It was an ancient power play 
to declare that the son was now taking the place of the father, that he was now taking all that belonged to the father and taking his place. And so, secondly, Absalom was a usurper of the throne, meaning he took the throne when it did not belong to him. Uh, this is considered high treason, right? He didn't wait for the throne to come to him by birthright. He's the eldest surviving son. So by convention, if he had just been patient, he would expect the throne to come to him. Uh, he pursued David to also take his life in order to secure his position as king. So he wasn't satisfied with, okay, I now have the throne, David is on the run, okay, la, let him go wherever he wants, la, I'm king already. No, he wanted to get rid of this threat that, no one, that David cannot take back the throne. And so he was very much trying to kill David. Okay? But thirdly, this was an injustice against God himself. If you remember back uh, in 1 Samuel, when Saul, the first king of Israel, was pursuing David, because he was jealous. David had many, many opportunities to take Saul's life. And each time he had the opportunity, what did David say? He said, no, right? This is the Lord's anointed. I will not lay a hand, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And so Saul was the first king of Israel anointed by God for the task before he was rejected by God. Right, because of his pride and disobedience. David, second king of Israel, uh, not counting the, the very short-lived reign of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, but David was the one who was anointed also by God to be king of all Israel since his youth. Okay, so those were the official anointings. And Absalom seizing the throne was an injustice against God and his will to anoint the next king and choose who would rule his people. And so Absalom was saying, I don't care what God thinks about who should be king. I should be king. And so with Absalom committing all these injustices, the battle of today's passage is not just a, death, uh, a battle of survival for David and his followers. It is a battle for justice. And so what happens is that the battle takes place in the forest of Ephraim. Okay, this is really, really small, but basically if you can make up some lines there, uh, the, the pink line that traces from the bottom, that is basically the route that, they, they, that David would take to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on the left. The middle is the Jordan River. Okay? And if you can make out an orangey and green sort of line there, that, that circles, those are the routes of the messengers who ran to tell David about the outcome of the battle. And so the forest of Ephraim is that circled area. Okay, so it's that region there. And because David's army had smaller numbers than Absalom's, they, they were experienced in guerrilla warfare. They also had the advantage by fighting in the forest where large formations are difficult to maintain. And so David's army, pretty much they win the battle. Okay? David, David's army is the one that wins the battle. Uh, they, they rout. That means that they, they totally like scatter lah, the enemy, uh, the, the armies of, of Absalom, and many, many died that day. But what about Absalom? Now, the fact that Absalom was even there, part of 
in, in the heat of the battle, that was part of Hushai's advice. And it's life likely that he, he survived that long only because of David's instructions uh, to, to be gentle with him. And so what happens to Absalom is, this, this is a little bit like a... Uh, you can imagine, uh, it's a very graphic scene, right? Uh, that Absalom is retreating on his mule, so he knows he's losing already. He's ah, uh, ah, running away, and then uh, he's riding a mule, which is the the mount that kings used, and he gets caught on a tree. Uh, the the actual Hebrew says that his head gets caught, but an earlier passage in chapter fourteen tells us he was very proud of his hair. He had very very long hair. He only cut it once a year, and then he weighed how many shekels and all that. And so he, he very likely had this image of, yes, let me ride into battle and have my hair <laughs> flowing behind me. You know, such a, oh, such a grand sight. And this seems to be his downfall. So Absalom is stuck. He is stuck in a tree. One of David's men sees it, and then he goes and reports to, to Joab, uh, one of the, the commanders of the army. And so Joab asks this soldier, Oi, you see the, the, the boss of the army uh, that is our enemy, why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you get rid of him? Why are you sparing him? And this guy tells, the, the soldier tells Joab, hey, we heard lah. We heard that David told you and the other army commanders to protect Absalom for his sake. Joab ignores this and he kills Absalom. Right, and then after that, he signals a stop to the fighting. He throws Absalom's body into a pit in the forest. He piles up rocks over it as a marker. This was something that they did to, to say that this is where somebody dishonorable lies. Okay, that each time somebody will pass, they will throw another rock uh, to add to the dishonor. And so David has won. David has won the battle. But when he is informed about their victory by this, uh, two messengers that I won't go into detail about, David is more concerned about the well-being of his son, Absalom. And when he's finally told that Absalom had been killed, he mourns. He mourns greatly. He weeps. See, David had lost his eldest son, Amnon, earlier, to, ironically, Absalom, Absalom's revenge for uh, Amnon's rape of his half-sister, Tamar. And as we saw in earlier weeks, David loved Absalom greatly. And so this particular loss would have been much harder, even, even harder than the loss of Amnon, because David would have associated and linked himself to be the cause of this death, that Absalom's conflict was with him. His men were the ones who killed Absalom. And so... Although David's dis defeat meant justice for David and his men, the death of Absalom is a tragedy for David. But it's not just a tragedy. It is also part of God's promised judgment for David's adultery. If you remember in uh, chapter 12, verse 10, when the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, one of the prophecies that he said, as part of judgment, not only would this child uh, born to Bathsheba will perish, but also the sword will never depart from David's house. 
And so this Absalom coming, uh, Amnon was the first, Absalom is the second, and it won't be the last time. Uh, there will be yet another power struggle between David's sons, uh, between Solomon, Bathsheba's son, and the next eldest after Absalom, who is Adonijah. But that only happens in 1 Kings, which we won't be covering. Now. Okay, but just to let you know that these judgments, one after another, uh, ended in the violent death of David's sons. And so David mourns the loss of Absalom, and in his grief, his men are ashamed of their victory because of the pain that it caused their king. And so this angers Joab, and Joab confronts David. Now, Joab is a, a ruthless guy. Uh, he is not, not, the, not the best sort of character to, to model ourselves after. Uh, we know that after this, David replaces him with somebody else, and then he kills that person. And, 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 and. So Joab is a very, very loyal supporter of David, but he is a seriously flawed individual. He's very, very um, impulsive. He's very uh, ends justifies the means kind of guy. And so anyway, uh, Joab confronts David. He rebukes him. Why are you mourning your son and not caring about the victory that we've won? What about the lives of your men? You care more about the lives of your son than the lives of all your men who are trying to save you and your family. And so Basically, he says, you, uh, you, you love those who hate you, Absalom, and you hate those who love you, uh, his men, by, by not caring about them. And so you made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. Uh, you. You would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead, because basically that's what David says, if only you were alive and I'm not. And so if Joab sounds bitter here, it's because... David's reaction towards Absalom's death goes against Joab's sense of justice for what is right for the kingdom and what is right for the people of Israel. So although Joab's words and his, his methods are harsh here, his words actually make sense. So David listens to him and he returns to his seat in the city gateway. This is the public place where people would bring the cases to the king to judge. And it's a sign that things are back to normal for David in his position as king. Now, each time I mention God's judgment, because we remember that all this is playing out as part of God's judgment upon the family of David for David's sin with Bathsheba and murdering uh, Uriah the Hittite. But each time I mention God's ju judgment, I must always remind us that today we are not operating under the same covenant of obedience for blessings, uh, blessings for obedience and curses or punishments for disobedience. Because this tends to be the, the common mindset in most religions that you earn, right? You, you, you work for either good or bad in your life and that, that religion is responsible for giving you the good or bad in your life if you work for it. And so we are not under that same sort of covenant today. If we have faith in Jesus, God's judgment for all our sins, which we deserve, uh, past, present, and future, 
all that judgment has been poured out upon Jesus at the cross. And Jesus paid the price that we were supposed to pay. Isaiah 53 verse 6 reminds us, we've all gone astray, so we have all sinned, we all deserve judgment, but the Lord has laid upon him for telling Jesus, uh, the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity, the sins, the punishment of all of us. And so yes, Jesus, uh, sorry, justice is demanded for all that we do wrong against God and all that we do wrong against one another. Justice is demanded as well. But this justice is met by the suffering and death of Jesus, not by you know, uh, things don't go according to our way, uh, difficult a bit, not happy, uh, God must be punishing me. No, not like that. Okay? The, the sins of all of mankind has been laid upon Jesus at the cross. Jesus paid the punishment. So, while we can experience the natural consequences of sin, for example, you steal something, you go to jail, right? If you are sentenced and uh, you're found guilty. Uh, so we, we can still experience all these natural consequences of sin, but God does not punish us for sin in a punitive sense. Okay? He might use the consequences of that sin to discipline us for our good. So let's say you steal something, you go to jail, you feel like, ah, yeah, so suicide in jail, I don't want to steal already. Uh, okay, <laughs> so we have been disciplined to no longer steal. But it is a, a, a discipline that is for our good to strengthen us or to get us to depend on Him more or to shape us more into the character of Jesus. Uh, it is no longer punishment as a form of uh, payment or form of retribution just to make you pay for your crimes. There is a big difference between whether God is punishing us or whether He is disciplining us for our good. Because it affects how we relate to God. If we view God as a God who punishes us for all the little, little things, the, the wrongs that we do, then we will approach Him, we will relate to Him as a policeman who is just waiting to catch us, just waiting for us to mess up so that He can punish us, waiting for us to break the law. Right, like the, the, before we had AES, uh, the policeman squatting under the underpass with this big camera, right? just waiting to catch us so that we can get into trouble. We will relate to God like that if we viewed all these things as punishments. But if we saw the difficulties that, we, that He allows us to go through as discipline, then we view Him as a loving Father who is guiding us towards what is best for us. You know how a father will sometimes, uh, unless it is uh, serious danger to life, uh, sometimes they'll say, okay, never mind. Let him, let him, let him do what, what is not right. Let him fall down. Let him taste the pain. Then he knows, right? It is discipline uh, for their own good. Okay, or sometimes, uh, no, 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 don't, don't let him go and fall down. Smack instead so that he feels a lesser pain uh, so for, for their own good. So how we see the, the effects of sin, whether punishment or discipline, affects how we approach God as Father. And also, if we've been a perpetrator of injustice, 
if we are the ones who have caused hurt and we feel remorse, then yes, we do all that we can to make things right. This is part of genuine remorse, genuine repentance that Jesus calls us to. But we can also be comforted that God has brought perfect justice to the messes that we have made through the sacrifice of Jesus. So we don't have to, to go through life feeling like God is punishing us for what we have or have not done. The death of Christ frees us to live holy lives, not out of you know, the, the burden of punishment, but out of obedience, out of gratitude for what God has done through His grace. And that brings me to my second point, that grace is extended. Where justice is demanded, grace is extended. Grace, to define it for us, is the undeserved favour of God. That means any way that God is good, any way that God uh, is, is, uh, uh, leans towards us, wants what is good for us, forgives us, any of that, whatever is good for us, but we do not deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. That is grace. In today's passage, we can see a picture of the sort of grace that God shows His children in how David continues to desire Absalom's safety and well-being. Even though Absalom is trying to kill him, David is still concerned and he wants what is best for Absalom. As mentioned by the soldier who found jo- uh, Absalom hanging in the tree, uh, we know that just before his army headed off for battle, David gave clear instructions to the commanders of his three army divisions, be gentle with the young man Absalom for his sake. Now, although David did not seem to discipline his children when he should have, uh, this is the battlefield. You kill or you be killed. And so this is no longer about disciplining his son. Way past that already. This was about sparing his life for what he had done. And so this was not something that Absalom deserved. Not only had he committed all those injustices that we just looked at, but technically, under the law of Moses, a rebellious son that does not respond to to correction, unrepentant, uh, is supposed to be stoned to death. Okay, so this, this is uh, uh, David extending this, this grace to spare the life of Absalom, to be gentle with him, is not something that Absalom deserves. And so David extends grace to Absalom, even though Absalom is not worthy of it. He does not deserve it. What motivates David to do this? Now, the Hebrew word for young man uh, in, this, in, in verse 5, be gentle with the young man, Absalom. The Hebrew word for this young man is literally boy. Okay? Uh, childhood to adolescence, that age range, boy. And in these words, you can see that David, for David, even while Absalom counted David as an enemy, David still saw Absalom as boy even though Absalom is almost 30 years old by then. By the time he died, he was about 29 years old. Okay? But David still sees him as his boy. And after David learns about Absalom's death, he weeps. 
And he says, he refers to Absalom. He doesn't say, oh, Absalom, you misguided soul. <laughs> oh, Absalom, you uh, enemy that uh, I, I uh, raised in my own household, you ungrateful. No, he says, my son, my son, my son. He repeats it many times. My son, my son. If only I had died instead of you, my son. And so in the end, the only reason David extended grace to Absalom instead of ordering his death or allowing his death by the hands of his men, uh, which is what he deserved, the only reason is the love of a father. And so friends, this gives us a, a glimpse into the sort of love our Heavenly Father has for all of us as his children just like how David did not want his son Absalom to perish, God has the same heart for all of humanity, that he desires us to be saved from the messes of our own making, the messes that the, the, the judgment of all sin is death, eternal death. He wants to save us from all that. In Absalom's case, he was the one who picked a fight with David. And when he finally died, his death brought salvation, peace, and security for David and his men. For us, humanity also picked a fight with God. We chose to rebel and sin against God. He created us to be without sin. He created us uh, to, to be perfect without sin. And we chose to rebel. We declared ourselves his enemies. And so, even while we were still counting ourselves, considering ourselves his enemies, by not acknowledging him, by not worshipping him, by not uh, living holy lives according to him, he extended his grace to us. He provided a way for us to be forgiven and saved from our sin while we were yet sinners, while we were yet undeserving, while we were yet set against him, the sacrificial death of Jesus brings us salvation, peace, and security, even though we did not deserve it. And so friends, just as how understanding God's justice is fulfilled by Christ, how that affects how we relate to God, uh, and our motives for coming before God, understanding the grace of God also affects how we approach Him and how we live our lives. You see, if we fail to understand God's grace and we, we fail to understand just how completely unobligated He is to forgive us or to save us, it can give us a sense of entitlement. And so if we lose sight of grace, we become entitled Christians that you know, yeah, I'm forgiven because I deserve it. I'm forgiven because I, I must have made such good choices uh, to, to be able to come into God's presence and have my prayers heard by Him. Since I live such a holy life, since I deserve His forgiveness and being in His presence, I deserve to have my prayers answered the way I want. And so if, if we have that sort of attitude towards God, that we are entitled to be saved. We are entitled to be, Christ, 
to, uh, to, to have eternal life and to be in God's presence and to be forgiven of our sins. If we lose sight of His grace, it will also affect how we worship, how we serve Him. That, you know, yeah, since I, I deserve to worship Him, I'm doing Him a favour. That when I come to worship Him, whether on my own or uh, together with the rest of the body of Christ on Sundays, uh, I'm doing Him a favour. And if I'm doing Him a favour, then, you know, if it doesn't feel good, doesn't make me feel good, doesn't, doesn't suit my preferences, too inconvenient, I, uh, I stopped doing Him that favour lah. After all, I'm just doing Him a favour. You see, the grace of God reminds us of our place, that we are not worthy, that we are undeserving. And that is not to condemn us. It is not for us to beat ourselves up and, Ayo, God, I can never come into your presence and so I will remain distant from you. It is so that we can come before Him with a humble and grateful heart, recognizing that we are blessed by Him. Let's look at our last point for today. Uh, don't worry if you can't read this. This is basically like part of a recap of the whole of David's life. Uh, it's from the, the Bible Project. Uh, search the Bible Project and then you can see. Okay, summary of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. So, of the many characters of the Bible, the life of David is one of those where we get so much insight into it in such great detail. There are very few characters where we, we really get so, the, the entire life, you know, like uh, Moses or uh, Paul, Jesus, even then it's like just one, you know, portion of their life. But for David, we see him from boyhood, walking with God from boyhood all the way until his death. And then the Psalms give us even more insight into things from his perspective. And so in this great wealth of insight into David's faith, we can make some observations. We can notice a pattern. And one thing we can notice is that if you follow the events recorded in 2 Samuel, although David doesn't abandon his faith, he doesn't turn to idols or anything like that, we can see that his faith and his character goes through a bit of a slump following the success and peace of becoming king of all of Israel and defeating Israel's greatest arm, uh, enemy, the Philistines. And so this is like a great achievement. It is a great uh, uh, period of great success and prosperity for David, a fulfillment of all the promises of his anointing as king and blah, blah, blah. And this, you will expect this, this is the high point of his life and this is where spiritual decline and character decline starts to happen. And so as David prospered, we see him fall uh, in various ways. We see him neglecting his role as king. He did not join his men during wartime. Instead, uh, committed adultery as a result of that opportunity. We see him neglecting his role as a father. He fails to discipline his sons. Uh, Amnon rapes his sister. He's angry. He doesn't do anything about it. Absalom takes matters into his own hands. Uh, we, we see him seemingly neglecting his role as judge. Absalom uses this and says, you know, the king is not here to hear your cases. Uh, and that's, that's why he gains so much popularity with the people because he promises them the justice that they are not getting from David. 
And so these past few chapters in 2 Samuel has not been kind to David in terms of his character and portraying his faith. Other than his repentance after the, the prophet Nathan confronts him about his adultery, the Bible doesn't actually tell us much about David's faith as a man after God's own heart, uh, at least within these few chapters. It records his actions as king of Israel, but it's mostly family and political drama. Yet, when David is forced to flee his kingdom to escape Absalom, there seems to be a shift in David's posture towards greater faith in the Lord. For example, in chapter 15, uh, verse 25, when David flees Jerusalem, the priests, uh, Zadok and, and the other priests, they, they initially followed him together with the Ark of the Covenant. But David doesn't try to bring the Ark of the Covenant along as political advantage or as a symbol of power like how the Israelites did during the Battle of Ebenezer under the leadership of uh, Eli, the high priest. Instead, David tells them, go back. He is more concerned about the safety of the ark than for the, the support that it gives to him. And so David tells them, go back. And he demonstrates his faith in God by surrendering to the sovereignty of God. And he says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. He will let me see it and his dwelling place again. And so that demonstrates the faith that he has in God, that God has allowed all of this to happen, uh, all of this to happen, and God is still in control. That if God doesn't want to bring him back, then he submits to God as well. So that's one example. Another example, as David fled Jerusalem, there's one point where he meets Shimei, who is a, a guy from Saul's clan, uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin. And Shimei comes out to throw stones and curse David and his men. Uh, you imagine uh, David is uh, still, still a, a king, a king that is fleeing his kingdom, uh, and he's followed by armed men. It's, Shimei is throwing stones. Okay. And so Dave, uh, Joab and his brothers want to cut off Shimei's head. This fellow, Motai, Mosai. Let's go and kill him. But you look at how David responds. David says, uh, what does this have to do with you guys? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can say, who can ask, why do you do this? And then he says uh, to, to all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. And so once again, this is a posture of submission to the Lord. Faith that God is still in control. And once we see David reinstated as king after the battle with Absalom and all that, we see he continues to seek the face of God. It's not the end of his story. He will continue to seek the face of God. Others in David's situation would have interpreted that God had abandoned them that God had forgotten his promise to establish his house and kingdom through, through his offspring. Uh, how, how, am I, how am I going to, to have a kingdom? How am I going to have my heirs inherit my kingdom if I'm fleeing my kingdom? Surely this is not how it's supposed to be fulfilled by this 
usurping. And so others would have seen this as maybe a straw that breaks the camel's back in their faith. But David believed that God was still in charge. And at the end of everything, he could still be trusted. Despite his current circumstances, he could still be trusted. And so this period of testing would have strengthened and proved David's faith, much like how he was first fleeing from Saul and his faith was tested and it was strengthened and proved. And we know that David's faith in God was not misplaced. For example, David doesn't know this, but we see that God is the one who is responsible for the chain of events that leads to Absalom's defeat and David's restoration as king. David didn't know this. He didn't know that God is the one who, who, who wanted uh, Absalom not to take the advice of Ahithophel and instead take the advice of Hushai. He didn't know this, he didn't read this, but he put his faith in God, not in his circumstances. And so friends, this is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. That the times when our faith is built, the times when our faith is strengthened the most, are not during the times of comfort. Not during the times when things are going our way and the way that we like. Instead, it is in the struggles and the difficulties that the greatest opportunities lie for strengthening our faith. You see, friends, faith grows the most when it is tested. Let me repeat that again. Faith grows the most when it is tested. At least, that has been my personal experience. It's been the experience of many. Uh, in fact, from the stories I've heard of uh, sincere conversion, sincere recommitment to God, so many of them happen against the setting and backdrop of some sort of tragedy, some sort of intense struggle. If you're not convinced, Bible example, this is also the experience of the Apostle Paul, that he too went through struggles and difficulties. He, he recognized it as being beneficial for his faith, that God would be glorified through his weakness. So while I know it's not fun to struggle through tough times, <laughs> trust me, I know it's not fun, uh, but as followers of Christ, we have the assurance that our struggles are not pointless. We are not going through meaningless struggle. At the very least, even if we don't see the silver lining or the rainbow or whatever, at the very least, the struggles that we go through are guaranteed opportunities for our faith to be strengthened. To depend on God more, to trust Him more, to submit to Him more, to allow Him to satisfy you more, even in the middle of your troubles. And so, friends, in conclusion, I'd like you to know that in Christ, God's grace satisfies His justice and strengthens our faith. Would you be humbled and grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus that took our punishment? And do look for the opportunity to strengthen your faith in every difficulty. I'd like to pray for us all now. Let's come before God in prayer.
Lord, at this moment, I want to pray for all of us before you here. Firstly, for those who have yet to place their faith in Jesus as their Lord. Lord, I pray that you will convict their hearts by the power of your Spirit. That, Lord, as we recognize our need for you, that there is this hole in our lives, there is this eternal struggle and conflict within us until we give our lives to you. Lord, would you satisfy? Would you help those who have not yet come to you? Lord, would you bring us to that point where we can say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Lord, for those of us who are ready to follow you at this very moment, but we've not yet made that choice, not yet taken that step, Lord, I pray that you will help them that as they open their hearts to you and they embrace you, that, Lord, you will enter their lives. And that, Holy Spirit, you will enter, you will baptize them, and that you will allow them into your presence. And, Lord, for those who struggle with how they approach you because they feel like you punish them or because... They struggle with coming before you with a sense of entitlement. Lord, I just bring these people before you. I pray, Lord, that you give us the right sort of attitude, the right sort of motives in approaching you. That, Lord, we, you would dismantle the lies of the evil one that seek to keep us away from you, that seek to distort your character and who you are and the sort of relationship that you want with us. I pray, Lord, that you'll set us right. You show us your love. That we don't just know in our heads, but that we are convinced in our hearts of your love, your grace, and your satisfied justice in Christ. And Lord, also for those who are currently going through a difficult time and having their faith tested, I pray, Lord, that you will give them your strength that even as they struggle, Lord, you will help them to see that their struggle is not in vain. Help them, Lord, to be encouraged. Help them to know that they have the comforter, the Spirit in them, that He strengthens and He equips and He transforms. And so, Lord, would you continue to walk with us even when we struggle to walk with you? Would you build our faith, Lord? Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.